Some time later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. He replied, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this, and not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So what's this story all about? Hmm? Well, it's all about, sure, the, the, the flat line of hope and the resurrection of hope. But before we look at what it means to you, to us today, I want to look at what it means, period. Because I think if we can grasp what this story meant then, it'll mean so much more to us now. And all of this, the, the idea of the flat line, the, the idea of wrestling through hope and hopelessness, like you heard in the spoken word there, it'll all come together if we can see what this story means first. And so what does is, what is all of this even mean? I hope to show you in three acts, act one. 
First, we should just be honest and acknowledge that the modern person, maybe this is you today, that you find this story confusing at best. And horribly, deeply offensive at worst. And, you know, many people, when they list reasons why they can't believe in God, why they don't believe in God, they'll list this passage right here as exhibit A. But I think there's no way that you can either critique and dismiss it if you're a skeptic, or that you can cherish it and understand it if you're a Christian. If you don't, if we don't first pull out of our right here, right now moment, if we don't pull out of our, our city of traffic and tacos and we don't relocate ourselves into Abraham's time and tent for just a moment. Notice number one here, Abraham's reaction. Uh, unlike other times in his life, if you know his story, when God comes, when he says something to Abraham, here Abraham doesn't react, he doesn't recoil, he doesn't doubt, he doesn't question, he just goes. Why doesn't he react or recoil? Why is his reaction different than ours to what God's word is, huh? There's got to be a reason, and there is. There's a Jewish scholar of biblical studies at Harvard University. His name, his name is Dr. John Levinson, and he's written a book called The Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son. And the, the whole point of the book was to help us get in the mind and the life and the times of Abraham. And he points out here how people typically feel about this story. He wrote, quote, that the God of justice and mercy should demand the firstborn of herd and flock is a common stumbling block for moderns. That he should demand the same of human families has been judged an offense much longer. Dr. Levinson goes on to explain, he said, you know, in ancient times, there was no such thing as, as individual success or individual accomplishment. There was only family success and family accomplishment. And so uh, when you wanted to succeed, you put all your effort into the family. And yet when a family, if a family member failed, the shame was shared by all. Not just by that person, but by you as well. Now, we don't typically think like this today as Americans. We think, you know, my life is all about me. My success is all about me. I have earned it all. I am not responsible for anyone and vice versa. But to think that you are entirely your own person, you're self-made, you owe nothing to no one, including your community, that is an entirely new perspective on the world stage of thought. And on the whole, I think that's pretty unbalanced. And I think also that deep down, we know that. For example, saying that we are entirely our own persons will be like one of my sons. I've got many sons, many sons had Father Morgan, apparently. All right, you know, that Bible joke. But and one of my sons, after he, if he won some baseball championship, that would be like him looking up and saying, I did it all by myself. I would like to thank especially me today. Now, as a parent, if that was what you heard one of your offspring saying in that moment, well, what, what, how would you react? Well, I think after you picked yourself up off the ground from laughing so hard at him, what would you say? You'd say, oh, by yourself, boy, who bought you? That glove, that bat, those shoes, who drove you to practice? Oh, that's right, I did because you don't have a driver's license. Who paid for the gas? That's right, I did because you don't have a J-O-B. Let's not even get started on the teammates or coaches or arms, limbs, talent, all by yourself. Player, please. You know, I don't think so. Now, if this is true for kids in sports, 
It's true for you in life as well. You know, other people's actions can reflect on you, make you more or less. And therefore, what we, what we sense in part, these ancient people knew in full. And so all through the Old Testament, God was always talking to them about stuff like that, saying things they understood, stuff like uh, Numbers 3, Numbers 8, Exodus 22, when God said, the life of every firstborn you shall give to me unless you buy it back, unless you redeem it with so-and-so amount of shekels. And so, you see, there was an annual redemption price on every family. That's what the law of Moses said. And when you hear those things, you like, family redemption price? Firstborn son? That's like trying to see through a dirty windshield for us. It's totally opaque. We don't get it. But to them, that language was crystal clear, easy to see. They understood because to them. The firstborn son represented both a family's future hopes, but also their past debt. That's what the firstborn son meant in everyone's mind. And hear me, this is crucial to understand because it explains Abraham's reaction. If God would have said to him, Abraham, arise, go kill your wife, go kill Sarah. Abraham certainly would have reacted. It wouldn't have made any sense to him, no more than the the Isaac thing does to us today. So when God says to Abraham, your firstborn is mine, Abraham understood what we don't. So please, please don't get angry or bent out of shape or offended by something that Abraham didn't. You see, you're not smarter than he was, right? Don't be offended about something he wasn't offended by. Abraham understood God is in this moment. He is calling in the debt. I owe him because he is a just God who cares about real right and wrong, real good and evil. But, and yet, and this is the crucial tension in the story. God had promised Abraham that through Isaac, he would bless all nations that Through Isaac, a line of kings would come. And therefore, if there's anything that Abraham wrestled through, it's this singular question. How can God be both just and merciful? Abraham would have wondered as he walked that mountain, climbed that hill, how can God be a a God who judges me justly because he's right and fair and righteous to ask this of me? And yet, how can he keep his promise to me? How can he be merciful toward me and fulfill his word through Isaac? Abraham's heart was beating out that question all the way up. His heart was beating out. How, how can God keep his word to me and yet be just? Abraham said, he, I can, he pictured him saying, God, I feel my hope is fading. It's falling. It's flatlining. Oh, but here and now in the middle of verse seven, we come to where Abraham's greatness and his character formed by testing shines through. Look at verse seven. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and a wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And what Abraham is saying is that he is trusting that God will provide a lamb so that his little lamb won't have to die. Now, some of you are saying, all right, that makes a little more sense, a little clear, but I still don't like it. And if that's you, I feel you. I I get you after speaking to college students and universities across the the nation for many years. I found many people who object to this whole idea, the, the objection to the idea that somehow, somewhere, there's someone who owes 
God a debt of sin. People say, I don't like the idea that we owe God anything. And here's how I think that objection goes in two parts or two questions. First, this is you maybe. People are asked, people ask, how can every person owe God, like Abraham, owe God a debt of sin? Well, let me just say to you, you actually want this to be true because you want it to be true for others. And we'll come back to that. But think about it like this. Let's just do a little thought experiment here, a special thought experiment on Easter Sunday. Here we go. Let's imagine that you had, you walked around with a voice recorder hung around your neck for the rest of your life. And, you know, you got your iPhone deal here and MP3 player, whatever. My thoughts, it says Easter 1st, 2018. Or if this isn't making sense to you, let's flash forward a generation back. Because some of you know what I'm talking about here with this old school voice recorder. This is what we had to work with. It's a miracle human beings have survived to this day. But let's say you had a, a voice recorder hung around your neck all your life. And all it ever recorded were the things that you yourself said had to do with your own personal moral record. Forget the Bible. Forget the Ten Commandments. Any other faith system, religion. It only recorded what you said was your own moral code, people, things people should do or shouldn't do. Do you know something? At the end of your life, when your recorder was played back to you, if you were really honest, you wouldn't even be able to meet your own standard. And if there really is a God, which there is, and he really cares about how people treat each other, which he does, then surely he would have a standard as well, which he does. And so, therefore, if we can't meet even our own highly flexible, questionable, permissible, jettisonable, to make up a word, moral standard. Do you really think we could meet a holy God's? No. In which case, we have a kind of moral record, moral debt. The, the irony is, of course, is that we have no trouble insisting other people owe God a debt. That group is guilty. Those people are guilty. That nation is guilty. In our culture of outrage, we know someone somewhere is guilty. We have no problem saying that. What we do have a problem with is the idea that we have a record, that maybe we're guilty before God. Second objection, people ask, well, can't God then, you know, just like forget about it? Just forget my debt. And the answer is no. And you know this, by the way. Uh, let me just give you an example. About two years ago or so, uh, uh, my, my three sons, I've got four children. I've got a daughter. Thank God for her. She's practically perfect, perfect in every way. But anyway, three sons. And, and, you know, if you've got three boys, you know what I'm probably where I'm about to go. But we had one of those mini hoops upstairs in our house, and they were doing a dunk, slam dunk contest on it one night. And the, the degree of difficulty with the slam dunks escalated until we heard from upstairs simultaneously a giant crash and a giant ow. It turns out they had been running up to and jumping off of a chair to get maximum distance and flight in the dunk contest. And one of them had gone so hard, he had put his knee through the door. True story. Now, I went up there, and of course I saw, you know, hole in door, child in pain. What to do? Now, only two things I could do with that. One is... I could make him pay me back. And, you know, in the same way when someone hurts you, you can try to make them pay you back. You can slice their reputation up. You can give them the frosty cold shoulder. You can say mean things about them behind their back. You can make them pay you back, but you've only taken revenge and you've become a worse person for it because you've made them pay. Or the second way is with the door in my house, you could pay the debt yourself. You could absorb 
the cost. See, someone always has to pay when there's a real wrong thing done, a real thing broken. Uh, but see, if there's no payment necessary, then nothing that was done was really wrong, really unjust, but because God cares about real evil, and not just evil as an impersonal force, which it is in part, but because God cares about real right, real wrong, evil and sin as things we personally do, then here and now in this passage, he cares about Abraham's sin here. And what all this means to follow Dr. Levinson is that Abraham is not a modern American, and he understands that he owes God a debt. He knows God's got the right to call it in. Oh, but the beauty of the story is that asked that last second, at the last moment, just when it looked like Abraham was going to have to pay the cost, God intervenes. God pays the cost here. And Abraham's flat-lined hope comes back from the dead, resurrected. But, but, there's still an unanswered question. Did you catch it in the passage? Because Isaac asked a question. Isaac asked, where is the lamb? Father, where's the lamb? Abraham says, oh son, look for the lamb. But there's no lamb here. There's only a ram. It's a different word, different idea. So where, to answer Isaac's question, where is the lamb? Act two. 2,000 years later, On the night he was betrayed, in the company of his own disciples, Jesus Christ of Nazareth stands up to uphold the Passover meal, the the meal that Jewish people since the time of Moses had celebrated to commemorate their exodus from slavery in Egypt, to remember the night that God had spared them, that the death had passed them over. And every year, every time it was the same thing over and over. Only here, now with Jesus, there are two massive discrepancies with the meal. See, when he stands up, everyone assumes that he's in the place of the presider, the father of the home, who was, whose job it was to stand up and explain the meal. And every year, in the same way, the presider would take the bread and stand up and say, this is the bread of our affliction. But Jesus doesn't do that. He stands up and takes the bread and says, this bread is my body broken for you. The second discrepancy at the Passover is that there is a reference to the bread. There's a reference to the cup, but there's no reference to the central element and feature, the point of the whole thing, the lamb. There's no lamb. Where is the lamb? What kind of Passover is this? It's Isaac's question all over again. There's no lamb on the table. How can there be a Passover meal without a lamb on the table? And the reason there was no lamb on the table is because there was a lamb at the table, you see. Oh, because unlike every other lamb that would ever be offered, this lamb, Jesus, was about to be offered up, not just for one man's debt, a family's debt, a nation's debt, but for the debt and shame and guilt of the whole world. Oh, when Isaac, oh, when Isaac cried out for understanding on that hill, as he walked it and carried the wood on his back, his father at least answered him. He said, Abraham said, my son, God will pay the debt. But when the greater Isaac, the greater son of promise, Jesus cried out on the hill of Calvary, as he climbed it with the wood on his own back, when he cried out to his father, oh father, why is this happening? His father gave no answer. And Jesus paid that debt in silence. See, Jesus as God's firstborn son gave himself The father did not withhold his son, his only son, from us. God didn't make us pay, didn't take revenge on us. No, God, the Trinity, within himself, Father, Son, Spirit, freely chooses to pay and absorb the debt, all for love, all for you. But it gets even better. Act 3. What's beautiful about this is that unlike every other lamb, this lamb, the lamb of 
God would rise. See, in the book of Revelation, last book of the Bible, at the very end, the, the, the Bible is a true story that is coming true. There's this picture, the writer John, in the book of Revelation, sees this vision of a lamb that's slain but risen, a lamb that's dead but alive. As a matter of fact, Revelation refers to Jesus as the lamb 28 times. And this is why understanding the phrase the lamb of God is crucial to understanding the whole Bible because a risen lamb is the only thing that makes sense of the whole thing. It makes sense of Abraham and Isaac, of Isaac's question. It makes sense of Moses and the Passover. It makes sense of the cross, of the upper room. Jesus is, can you see, the resolution to every story. He's the key to every mystery. He's the one who answers Isaac's question. Where is the lamb? Jesus says, I'm here. It's me. I'm the lamb. And that's what this story means. And you can't answer it without Jesus. So what then, in the end, does it mean for you, for us here today, this Easter? The rising of a lamb means this, and I hope you'll see this. The rising of a lamb means at the same time, the rising of your hope today. Wherever it, like Abraham's, has fallen or been flatlined, you say, how can this be? Oh, remember what the firstborn represented. The firstborn didn't just represent the family's sin and past. Oh, but the firstborn represented the family's future. And so now, can you see, when you see Jesus, the firstborn son of God, the New Testament calls him the firstborn over all creation. You can see him now, not just as the firstborn son offered for you in your past, but as the firstborn son risen for you, triumphant for your future. See, because he's been in your place for your past, you can know what your future is if you trust him to be your provision, your salvation, your lamb. It means your future, no matter what, just like Abraham's was in that moment. No matter how bleak and dark it looks, there's going to be a resurrection and a new hope in life. It means a new victory. Your future means no matter what, like Jesus, an undefeated forever. And I want you to hear me today, no matter if your entire life is some kind of Good Friday, even if there's only Good Friday pain, Good Friday betrayal, Good Friday disease, Good Friday death, as it's been said, what you've got to see is that your Sunday is coming. Your Sunday is coming. Your flatline isn't for forever. The classic Easter hymn puts it like this. So made like him, resurrected like him, made like him, like him we rise. Ours the cross, the grave, the sky. See, if your faith today, if your trust is in Jesus to save you, your salvation isn't in something that'll fade like your looks, something that'll go empty, maybe like a bank account, something that changes like the economy, something that'll die like your parents or your children. But your salvation is the firstborn lamb of God. Then when you see him and you see him triumphing over the grave and the power, of darkness, that's when all becomes yours. The cross, the grave, the skies, because the firstborn son doesn't just represent your past. Oh, he represents your future. And the Christian doctrine of resurrection says that what we will receive with Jesus in eternity isn't just a consolation prize for the life we've always wanted. It will be the life we've always wanted. And what we receive then will be all the greater for having gone through what we've gone through now. Some years ago, I had a really vivid nightmare. Maybe you've had the same kind of nightmare too. I hope not, but it's the kind you don't tell your spouse when you wake up in the morning. I, I dreamed that someone had broken into our home and had murdered my wife and murdered my children, killed them all, and I was left with the, the wreckage of a life and despairing and hopeless and frightening. And then 
I woke up. I woke up. And I looked over at my wife and realized she was there. My kids were asleep in their beds. And then I thought, you know, I may have gone to bed with them, you know, you know, a little grumpy, maybe a little fussy, maybe something like that. But I, in that moment, it was like, oh, my family, you're here. See, what, what had happened? No, not only, can you see, did the nightmare not take away my joy when I woke up, the nightmare made the waking up, made the possessing them even greater, even better for having gone through it. And if what the Bible says is true, and it is, that's what the resurrection will be like. Ours, the cross, the grave, the skies. They're ours because of our firstborn son, Jesus. Can you say amen to that, church?